Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Give us this day our daily bread. Amen. Amen. These words are taken from Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 30, and the last line from our Lord Jesus, who taught us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. It's a prayer not just for what we need, but a prayer that we might not forget what we need above all. This being the case, it is therefore a prayer that God might give us thankful hearts. What do we need above all? We know we need God. We need Jesus to teach us to know and trust in God. We need to hear his word. More than we need what he gives, even to the birds and all evil people, and he knows what what we need and that we need these things, more than this, we need Jesus, who teaches us from whom we may expect all good things. We know that our life does not consist in the abundance of the things we possess. This is obvious. Life is much more than this. It is easy to know. It is hard to believe. Many things work to convince us not to believe what we know until we no longer know what we think we knew. Our lesson this last Sunday impressed this warning. Those virgins called wise, more accurately, are called thoughtful. They pursue wisdom. They have wisdom in Christ. They pursue Christ. They have Christ. And so they are indeed wise. But wise as they are, these five virgins who enter the wedding feast of joy that has no end, the word that Jesus uses to describe them does not denote what they have attained, but denotes rather what they still sought to gain. He describes them as mindful. Watch, therefore. Be mindful. Be thoughtful. Think. This is where we get the word thank. We thank by thinking. Think about what you know. Think about what you know you have. We think about what we know from God because what we know is truly very hard to believe. We know that our life consists in more than the abundance of what we own. But what do we think about? When we think about life and what would improve it, do we not think about what we would like to possess or how to improve what we already have? What are your daydreams? What are your plans? Monica finally consented the other evening to my long-time insistence that she sign up to be a contestant on Wheel of Fortune. Who knows? She's really good. So we and the kids all discussed and pretty well decided what we are going to do when mom wins a million dollars. It's kind of fun to talk that way. And most of our thoughts and desires tend to focus on such things like this. What we might possess on earth in order to be happy. 
But we know more than that. Earth's joys grow dim. It's true. Its glories pass away. So I suppose when the luster of life that comes from what may be purchased with money fades, then possessing better health takes over. Well, that's certainly more noble. But there's no escaping the mindset, is there? While health cannot so easily be bought and sold, yet it is no less material. The abundance of what we possess in our bodies is still treated like the measure of our life. Even for the base and shallow pleasure seekers who claim no desire to be rich, but only to love, 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 yet you see how they deceive themselves. Even here, life consists for them of owning, controlling, and possessing what flatters their flesh. It's all about possession. Every sordid lust, every vain desire for beauty on one hand, as well as every noble goal to promote philanthropy and pursue human progress on the other. All of this is nothing more than to measure one's life by the abundance of what one has in his or her control. Above all, And behind all these daydreams for wealth, health, or pleasure is the old sin of pride. We want to be honored. We want others to behold us and think about us. This temptation especially afflicts the old, who have been properly jaded by the deceit of riches and power and fleeting pleasure. Such things may well be for the birds or for the foolish and the young, yes, but who? would gladly be rid of his own good name. What man, having attained such ascetic wisdom, would gladly be rid of his fame? If the devil knows how to seduce the fool, he is also good at seducing the wise. Earthly pleasures are short-lived, but pride is not so easily killed. We know it. The impulse behind all earthly desire for abundance is pride. Man cares more about what others think of him than what God thinks of him. Man thinks of himself as his own highest good rather than of God alone, the true highest good. And this really gets to the heart of sin. It gets to the heart of the sin that poisoned us from the beginning when Adam and Eve listened to the promise of the devil who, think about it now, didn't promise to provide a thing, but promised that they would be able to provide for themselves. You will be like gods. This did not flatter their urge for wealth or health or pleasure. All that was already at hand. No, but it flattered their pride. Nor were they even tempted to replace God. Oh, that would be foolish. They were content merely to be like God. Adam and Eve were created wise. So Satan did not tempt them with what foolish people are tempted by. He tempted them with what you and I are tempted by. Beware of covetousness, Jesus says. Why? Why would we covet? We have all that we need. But chiefly for this reason. Not because we grow weary of lacking what is good. No, for then there might be an end to covetousness. We might grow satisfied in time, but no, we covet because we grow weary of depending on God. Like the rich fool who had every opportunity to eat, to drink, and be merry, but who tore down his barns and built new ones as an edifice to his own self-reliability. 
By nature, we do not want to regard the source of all goodness as the greatest good himself. Oh, what foolishness there is in our wisdom. If Adam and Eve were created wise, it is not because of some quality they had, which in our day, old age, might grant. No, it was not some mental strength that we lack today. It is because they had God's word. They had Christ. They knew him. He spoke to them. He created them to have fellowship with God by creating them to learn God's word and to think about it. And here is the weakness that Satan exploited. What natural man in his pride now regards as beneath his dignity, that man would depend on God. He convinced our first parents to regard wisdom, their own wisdom, as a quality in themselves rather than a quality in God, a quality in God that they had to depend on and listen to and learn from and love. This is what Christian wisdom is. It is dependence. It isn't a strength in us. It is a reliance on him who is wisdom himself. And it always will be. Even when we are glorified in heaven, true wisdom is a reliance and dependence on him who is our wisdom. All covetousness boils down to more than just desire for wealth and health and pleasure and honor. Covetousness is worse than these. It boils down to the desire to be independent from God. What likeness of God do we still possess? What image of God do we still have? The image is entirely lost if by image we mean righteousness. This image was abandoned when Adam disobeyed God's word. But what image do we still have, if we can speak that way? Is it that we are able to reason better than the birds, but yet the birds put us to shame with their carefree trust in God who feeds them, despite their inability to reason? No, if there is some image of God that we still have, though faded and smeared and corrupt, if there is some likeness that we might yet return to, it is this that we are still able to think about what God tells us. And this, dear Christians, is only because God still speaks to us. Otherwise, what thoughts would we have worth thinking? And what thanks could we have worth giving? Solomon, in the prayer I prayed, from Proverbs 30, exhibits the best of man's wisdom when he asks neither to be rich nor poor. And this is the best of human thinking. And he's right. And these words were, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet he seeks the ideal by avoiding the extremes. He moderates. And this is key. Man is not so reckless as to be blind to all dangers. Man's highest wisdom is to take the middle road, safest, And so man at his best teaches that life consists in the abundance of virtue. The greatest philosophers, lovers of wisdom, is what the word means. They summarize the height of virtue as these. Prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And this is what life consisted of. It consisted of virtue. The things with these earthly virtues is that like all earthly virtues, they can be abused. The extremes are dangerous. One can be too devoted to prudence that he shamefully ignores all exceptions to the rules. One can be too devoted to justice that he ignores the goodness of compassion. 
One can be too devoted to fortitude or bravery that he becomes too hasty and careless. One can be too devoted to temperance that he avoids to his own harm even the enjoyment of good things. There is a middle way between courage and cowardice, legalism and lawlessness, and so forth. This is the best man can do in his wisdom to navigate through this world. He finds the middle way. So what's the problem? Well, not only is it impossible for the middle way to be struck in every endeavor and in every policy and plan and in every thought, the problem is also that the middle way between good and evil, despite all our knowledge of both, the middle way cannot secure for us the life worth living or the life that won't end in failure and regret and sorrow and death. And this is because our life does not consist of virtue. Our life does not consist in what must be moderated. Our life does not consist in avoiding the extremes. Our life consists not in the abundance of deprivate or the deprivation of what we might possess. It is true that God may well use either abundance or poverty to train us and direct our perspective on things, but our life does not consist in our self-discipline. Our life consists in Christ, who fills our cup so that it overflows. He is the image of God, and this is how he operates. He is the wisdom of God, and this is what he teaches. He is the Son of God, our Savior, and he reveals a God who gives abundantly. He is not a quality in us. He is God who reaches down to us. He is for us. Life consists in him, in knowing him. Life consists in knowing his perspective, in knowing his mercy, and finding your greatest joy and wisdom in depending upon it, for depending upon God in Christ is to truly live. Jesus pursued no philosophical virtues, but divine virtues. He pursued what only God can reveal. He did not save us by living a middle way, moderate life. No, he pursued what is only good and noble if they are pursued in the uttermost extreme. He believed perfectly. He hoped perfectly. He loved perfectly. He took God at his word and did all that was given him to do for our salvation as though his own eternal life depended on God's word and doing it even more than eating his daily bread. He hoped in what was promised him, even though what he hoped for was hidden by the deepest abandonment of both friends and God alike, while suffering and dying all hell on the cross, because he would hope for nothing if he had no hope to bring us with. And so he loved to the fullest, to the extreme, obnoxiously. He loved God by bearing all our sin to give us back to the God who wanted us back. He loved us by shedding his blood unto bitter death in order to cleanse us from all our sin, not just the big ones, the little ones, all of them. He did not save us by living a virtuous life. He saved us by living a holy life. By regarding his Father as his highest good and goal, he saved us by living an obedient life. Obedience to more than principles of good living that require moderation down the middle road. No, but by obedience to God our Father, the source of all living. Obedience to his holy law, which is filled, fulfilled by love alone. A love in the extreme, love that required his death on the cross for us men and our salvation. It is love also that teaches us to love God.
The best and noblest life that man can pursue is life that must skate always between this danger and that, between poverty and riches, as we pray in Proverbs 30. But how Solomon began his prayer was truly good enough, and it should suffice for us. Remove falsehood and lies from me. Deny me not before I die. Now certainly this is worth thinking about, for this is what God has done for you. With this you learn to be content with either riches and all the dangers that come with being rich or also with poverty and all the dangers that come with being poor. You learn to be content with much or little because when you know the truth of what Jesus has done and when you believe the truth of what Jesus has said, you possess a life that consists of more than what earth can abound with. You possess a peace that your heart cannot contain or your mind understand. It consists in knowing God in heaven as your Father who loves you and Christ his Son is the goal of all your thoughts. And so think about what you have. Think about what you'd like to see change. Think about what you'd like to have your life improved with, health-wise, reputation-wise, and so forth. Think about it. Think about where you have failed, lusted, coveted, connived, stolen, wasted, squandered, and sought extreme, this extreme or that extreme. Repent of your sin. And think of Christ who bore it away and who makes himself the measure and goal of your life and all your thoughts. Think of him, your worthiness, your wealth, your health, and the pleasure above all that fades away. For he will not fade away. Think about whatever will capture your thoughts, but think of Christ. Think about what you look forward to and want more of, but think of Christ. And so doing, your supplications and prayers and begging will always be made with thanksgiving, even before you get what you've been thinking about. For you have Christ, and you think about Christ. And with Christ, when you, when you want what you want to attain in heaven, you find that you have already gained it on earth. You have what surpasses understanding. You have what your heart cannot contain. You have thoughts worth thinking. You have wisdom. You have thanks worth giving. You have Christ. You have eternal life. You have his Father who loves you and forgives you and is pleased to give you all that you have to enjoy. Enjoy it, therefore, with a good conscience. Enjoy it while thinking of Jesus who makes you worthy to receive it. This is how you enjoy it with thanksgiving. He who gives freely will never fail to keep giving you himself, your highest good. To be dependent on him for mercy is to have the height of wisdom, everything in abundance, everything worth ha having, and a very bright future. And above all, thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.